Well, I wonder if you have ever seen The Fox and the Hound. It's a classic movie, great little kids cartoon. Uh, if you haven't, it's a story of a fox named Todd and a hound dog named Cooper and their struggle to preserve their friendship, which they developed as ch- as in, in childhood. They're, they're both growing to adulthood and discovering that they're naturally meant to be and expected to be enemies. Well, today we see the opposite thing happening. We're looking on as, as two groups which have for very, very long been enemies, been told to fight each other, been told to stay separate and to hate each other, they're discovering that God is actually drawing them together to become one. We're working our way through the book of Acts at the the moment. We're watching on as God acts powerfully through his spirit to spread the good news of Jesus beyond Jerusalem where it first started. The chapters that we've we've read so far have, have shown how God makes it clear that anyone from any cultural group, any background, is welcome to claim faith in Jesus, to come to know him. In chapter 8, we saw the Samaritans, long-time rivals of the Jewish people who lived nearby. They were included. Then a eunuch from Ethiopia, far away, he is brought to salvation. Then the biggest enemy of the early church, Saul, the persecutor, he's converted in chapter 9, Adam unpacked the story of Saul's dramatic U-turn for us last week. This week, we see another significant conversion, one which is definitely dramatic, but somewhat less unexpected, perhaps, for us. There's one group of people who were culturally uh, the furthest possible from the Jewish people. The Romans, the people who had brutally conquered and then subjugated their country for, for generations, And once again, we see God at work powerfully by his spirit to send a clear message of gospel inclusion for all. We'll look back through that story that we just heard, uh, looking at the three key movements that happened there. First, we see an unlikely vision. Next, we see a clear invitation. And third, we see a powerful confirmation. So first, this unlikely vision. I wonder what you first thought when you heard verse 1 of the reading there. Let me remind uh, remind you of it again. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. What are you thinking? Chances are you're thinking something along the lines of, cool, there's a guy, he's called Cornelius, works in the army, lives in this Caesarea place, No big deal. But for the people living at the time when Acts was written, they immediately knew that this was a big deal. Because the area of of Judea, where the story has all happened so far, where all the Gospels are set, was a province conquered by the Roman Empire. You can see all of Europe conquered here. The red is the Roman Empire. Down there on on the far right-hand side, you can see there's that area there which you'd find Judea in. For decades, there had been revolts, uprisings, unrest, fighting, warfare, as the Jewish people tried to kick out the Romans. And the Romans had even built an entire city from which to rule over Judea. They named this city after Caesar. It was called Caesarea. A city guarded by an elite squad of native Italian Roman soldiers called the Italian Regiment. 
So when we read verse 1 through their eyes, who first read it, our story pans to the central point of a military occupation, introduces this man named Cornelius, and describes him as a leader in the army known for brutally subjugating the region. But there's more to say about Cornelius. Verse 2 then paints a different picture of of the man than than they might have expected. He and his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Despite his culture and his position, Cornelius seems to be hes a pretty great guy by the looks of it. He's, he's virtuous or good in, in worldly terms at least. He's generous. He's desco- described as God-fearing and praying to God regularly. This word God-fearing is used often in the New Testament to describe someone who recognizes that the Jewish God is, is a real God and, and, and uh, may, might pray to them, him occasionally, but who isn't willing or ready to take up all the Jewish customs and, and traditions to, to become Jewish culturally and, and wholeheartedly follow that God. It's likely that Cornelius would still have prayed to the Roman gods, the little um, altars and shrines that would be in his barracks and that sort of thing. But he he seems to have really been doing a good job of of getting the respect of the local community. In in verse 22, um, Peter is told that Cornelius has the respect of the whole local Jewish community in the area. But despite all this good stuff, Cornelius still needs to be saved, right? That's what the whole chapter is about, as, as we just heard. Despite being a morally good, decent bloke, Cornelius still needed to be made right with God through Jesus. So maybe Cornelius is a bit easier for us to relate to than Saul from last week. You know, last week we, last week we looked at Saul. Uh, he was passionate about religion, but he hated the message of Jesus. And we saw the sudden U-turn in his life to, to loving Jesus and, and sharing him. Maybe wanting to kill all Christians could be a little bit difficult for you to relate to. So Cornelius could be a bit easier for us because there are plenty of Corneliuses in our lives, right? Well-respected people who we like, who, who do a good job in, in their job. They have decent morals. They're, they're happy to acknowledge that God is prob- probably there. They'll pray to God, uh, might even come to church occasionally but people who, despite that, don't know and trust in Jesus. Maybe you're someone who's visiting us today or joining us online who fits in in that box. Maybe that describes you well. And I'm sure that all of us know plenty of people in our lives who, who that is a good description of. But the clear message of the Bible is that knowing that there is a God does not equal being saved through Jesus. God's salvation that he offers to us is simple, but he doesn't simply save people who know that he's there and live decent lives. He saves all people who call on his name, who repent and believe in Jesus. And, as we're going to see, that includes Cornelius. But there are some big barriers in place here, right? Cornelius is an outsider culturally, as one of the Roman oppressors. He's an outsider religiously, under the laws that God had given to the Jewish people in the Old Testament, they weren't even meant to relate, to to spend time with and eat meals with Gentiles, which is a word for non-Jews. So these conflicting parts of who Cornelius was set up an interesting problem for these early Christians. 
How could Jews and Gentiles possibly ever share this same faith in Jesus? Especially the Roman Gentiles. In fact, before Jesus, the Jews were expecting the Messiah, Jesus, to show up and then bring his kingdom on earth by militarily wiping out the Romans. Now it seems like God's going to include the Romans in Jesus' kingdom. that's, That's going to be a hard sell. But God is at work here, and he works in a clear, powerful way to make sure that his message of inclusion for all is made very clear. So he provides two visions with perfect timing. First, he speaks to Cornelius himself through an angel. You know, Cornelius, as we read there, he was praying in his house in the afternoon, and suddenly he sees an angel before him. This angel tells him to send for Simon called Peter, who's staying in the city of Joppa. Joppa's about 60 k's down the coast from Caesarea. And this, this Peter is staying in the house of another Simon, Simon the Tanner. Uh, we do have a Simon Tanner in church. He comes along to the PM. I don't think it's the same Simon, but I'll, I'll check up on that. Anyway, while Cornelius's men are on the way down to, to find Peter, God sends Peter a powerful vision. Now, this is the Peter who has been a key figure in the early church so far. The Peter who walked with Jesus for three years. Uh, The Peter who famously denied Jesus three times before his crucifixion. The same Peter who was forgiven by Jesus three times after his resurrection. This Peter, despite that, he still hasn't quite gotten how revolutionary this message of Jesus, all that he's done in his death and resurrection, how revolutionary that is. But he's about to find out. It's about lunchtime. Peter's getting a bit hungry, lunch is getting ready, so he heads up onto the flat rooftop to spend some time in prayer. Now, if I was in that situation, I'd probably find myself daydreaming about food, but Peter experiences something much more drastic, much more dramatic. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds, Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Sounds great. But for Peter, raised as a devout Jew, this was unthinkable. This was a sheet full of unclean foods. Now, I don't mean that there were sheep in there which had gotten a bit muddy. No, ceremonially unclean. Peter knew full well that God had commanded the Jewish people not to eat certain types of foods which were deemed unclean. You can read the list in Deuteronomy 14 if you want to do some some reading later on. God gave his people a series of ceremonial laws to show, to reflect, that they were called to be a people who were separate and distinct, clean from the nations around who didn't follow God. Peter knew that to even... um, Peter knew that eating with a Gentile, a non-Jew, would make you unclean, let alone actually eating the foods which non-Jews ate, which would make you extra unclean. So it's quite reasonable for Peter to think that this is a test, and he seems to respond that way. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything unclean or or impure. No, God, I'm hungry, but I'm going to resist this temptation. I'm going to pass this test that you've given me. But then comes the kicker, right? Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. It is easy to criticize Peter here for, for not understanding the vision, which is repeated three times. But 
we want to look at it from his perspective, it does make a lot of sense that it would be a hard one to grasp. His whole life, Peter has been raised to follow these customs and traditions, which aren't just cultural norms, but which were given by God for his people to follow. Now, he would be understandably quite confused. Uh, To help us grasp that a little bit, this would be like asking Pastor Adam. Now, if you don't know Pastor Adam, he is a a big Maroons fan, loves the Maroons. You should see him at State of Origin. He hates cats with a burning passion, loves a top-notch whiskey. It would be kind of like asking Pastor Adam to go visit the Blues training ground with a big smile on his face, uh, to visit while the RSPCA is, is running an Adopt-A-Cat day and to take part, and to tell him to bring along his favourite bottle of whiskey to share around with everybody there. This vision is commanding Peter to do something which goes against the very core of his upbringing. And so he, he's understandably puzzled. But God knows that. So in God's perfect timing that the men from Cornelius arrive, and just as they show up, God gives Peter this direction. He tells him there's men outside. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. So Peter does. God is is making a clear point here. He's setting all the pieces into place to give a clear invitation. And Peter is the messenger for this invitation. So as we look at that clear invitation, we see Peter now on his way up to Caesarea, which isn't a short stroll, by the way. If we look at Caesarea on a map, it's 60 kilometres away from Joppa there. Uh, Joppa's down on the coast, Caesarea further up the coast. That's about a two-day walk, and it does take them two days to walk there. And it's not just a long, hard walk, remember. Peter is walking directly into the centre of the Roman military occupation. God's command to Peter here is uncomfortable, but he still obeys. And that's a useful lesson for those of us who are Christians, who, who, who know and who seek to follow Jesus. He will ask us to do things which take us outside of our comfort zone. He will ask us to follow him, even when that means doing things which are difficult, making difficult decisions, going to difficult places. Indeed, the the whole of the Christian life is described by Jesus as taking up your cross and following him. Now, my life really isn't that difficult compared to to many, to most even, compared to many in in the Gospels and in in the New Testament. But let me use my life as a bit of an example because this is a principle which Rachel and I are trying to live out at the moment. As Adam shared with you a few weeks ago, um, I'm intending to to step out of my role here at Oasis, which is a church I love being a part of, so that I can help to fill uh, a huge need for pastors in our denomination in many churches who don't have someone. Now, I've felt that call clearly over the last year or so. Um, It's not a particularly comfortable call. Like, I really love this church. Rachel and I both love being here. It's a comfortable place to be. We've got great friends. We've got a great community. We're in a healthy church environment. But as I'm learning in life, following Jesus often means that he will call us to step outside of our comfort zone as soon as we get comfortable. So that's me. What could it look like for you to follow Jesus in your life? Are you in that space where you're going, yep, things are uncomfortable now, but God is good? Are you perhaps in a space where you're going, oh, life has been pretty good recently. Maybe God is 
getting me ready to, to call me back out in, into a space uh, of uncertainty, of, of, of discomfort following him? Are there certain people in your life who you could um, reach out to, who you could intentionally engage with, with the good news of Jesus? Is there a certain way that you could take up your cross and follow him? Perhaps we just heard the need of Bapalal over in India. Perhaps there's a way that, that you can give up something nice and something comfortable to make it possible for Bapalal and his family to have a roof over their heads. What could that look like for you? Peter was much more outside of his comfort zone than I expect that I'll be. Touch plastic. Um, but, but the lesson is clear, right? When the Lord calls, we must follow. So Peter finds himself in Caesarea uh, speaking to, to Cornelius the centurion. And there's a crowd, right? Cornelius isn't alone. He's gathered his family and friends. The house is full. He wants everyone to hear whatever this message from God is and, and what a message it is. Peter has now worked out, probably on the 60K walk, what the vision from God was all about and how enormous the impact of Jesus' death and resurrection truly is. He's realized that this goes far beyond just inviting people to to join the Jewish faith, to become Jewish, to take on all the cultural practices, but that Jesus truly is welcoming all people into his kingdom. He sees that the clean and the unclean laws in the Old Testament show this this important principle that God calls his people to be spiritually clean, to be distinct from the world. But now in Jesus, there is no longer clean or unclean because when we trust in him, he takes all of our uncleanness on him and it is nailed to the cross. This truth is unpacked more in Galatians chapter 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You know, many people, I'm, I'm sure you've, you've heard this if you engage with people who don't share the same faith. Many people will claim that Christians pick and choose which laws and parts of the Bible to take seriously, you know, as, as whatever fits and suits us. But this is one example of how we apply the whole of the Bible cohesively, looking at the big picture of every theme, like these food laws that we see here, seeing how they point us toward Jesus and fit into the whole story of the Bible. Peter has gotten this message and he announces the the good news to his Gentile listeners. See how he says it there. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. He then goes on to, to share the good news about Jesus. And Peter's message here is remarkably brief. You know, I wonder how many words you would need to use to communicate who Jesus is and, and why you follow him. I would probably struggle. Uh, I've got a famous tendency to, to ramble. Peter uses less than 200 words. For perspective, speaking at the same speed that I have been now, that would be a minute and a half, 90 seconds. So what's in that message? Well, if you're a Christian, Peter's message gives us great insight into how we can succinctly and clearly share the good news found in Jesus. 
And if you aren't a Christian, then this clear and succinct message is a simple invitation for you. Broadly, Peter highlights three key things. Who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and how he calls us to respond. Peter reminds them of who Jesus is. Jesus is Lord of all. He reminds the people who were alive at the time that in the last three years, Jesus had been through the countryside preaching the good news. Some of these people may even have seen Jesus. Reminds of who he was. Then he tells them about Jesus' death and resurrection. He, shows, he explains how this fulfills the promises that were made in the Old Testament, that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And finally, he tells them that the forgiveness of sins can be found by believing in the name of Jesus. It's a simple message, but it's so powerful. So are you perhaps a Peter of sorts, someone who God can use to present the good news of the gospel? Is there a particular person or maybe a group of people in your life who, who God's put you close to, who God has put on your heart so that you can connect with them, so that you can show and share the good news of Jesus with them? Do you think that you'd be able to share the good news of Jesus if you got a 90-second opportunity? Maybe it would be worth taking some time today to, to give that a shot, to see if you're able to put that message into 90 seconds. Or perhaps you might be more like Cornelius, someone who needs to hear and to accept this message. You know, whether you are a lot like Cornelius, totally okay with the idea of God, wanting to know him a bit, a bit more, but, but not yet having placed your faith in Jesus. Or if you're like a Saul, you know, actively hating Christians, looking at who God's calling to do a U-turn in faith. Or if you're anywhere in between, regardless of, of where you are, there's no amount of good that you can do that will earn God's love, and there's nothing so bad that you could do that would make you unsavable, because God gives his love freely through Jesus. The good news of Jesus is that you can be made right with him simply by trusting in him, repenting and believing. And that's true for all people from all cultures and all backgrounds. And we can be sure of that message because it's for the same reason that the early church could be so sure that this was a message from God, because God worked powerfully to prove that he was behind it. Which brings us to our final and shortest part of the story, a powerful confirmation. As Peter is preaching this message, something remarkable happens. The Holy Spirit is poured out suddenly and powerfully on all those who are listening in a remarkable way. Now, if you're feeling a little bit lost about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is God. Just as much as Jesus is God, as God the Father is God, the Spirit is how God most often works in our world and in our lives to point people towards Jesus. Jesus promised during his time on earth that the Spirit of God would come and fill his apostles to be with them after he had left. And indeed, that the Spirit, the great comforter, as Jesus called him, would be with all those who would trust in him, including all of us here today who trust in Jesus. After Jesus ascended into heaven, the Spirit was poured out on his apostles in an event called Pentecost, in a powerful, dramatic way. They were going out, there was tongues of fire, they were speaking in, in tongues, speaking in different languages of, of people around them. It was very dramatic, 
And then that same thing happened again. Uh, We saw that with the Samaritans a couple of weeks ago. The Samaritan people heard the good news of Jesus, had a similar dramatic outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And now it happens again with the Roman Gentiles. So what should we get from that? Should we expect to see a dramatic pouring out of the Holy Spirit with tongues and that sort of thing whenever somebody is saved as, as a sign that they definitely are saved? Well, no, that's not the point of the passage. Author Albert Moeller Jr. writes, some take these events as evidence that when someone receives the Holy Spirit, they should also speak in tongues. But that reading of the text misses the point of the passage by failing to read it in its context. The entire chapter has focused not on the gift of tongues, but on the inclusion of the Gentiles in the covenant community. If these two groups share one spirit, then they are one body, united by faith in Christ and all equally members of the church. This was, in in effect, Pentecost for the Gentiles. This Pentecost for the Gentiles was a one-off seal of God's approval, a sign that he truly was behind this message, that all people, regardless of culture or background, could trust in Jesus and be saved. That sort of large-scale, dramatic pouring out doesn't happen often afterwards. It does, and it sometimes still can and may happen. But the Holy Spirit is acting powerfully here, as he has been through the chapter, through visions, audible words, perfect timing. In fact, as he has been acting through the entire book so far. That's why this book that we're in is best known as the Acts of the Holy Spirit rather than, say, the Acts of the Apostles, because God is the one powerfully at work sharing his message and growing his church by his spirit. Peter and the others with him recognize that God is clearly at work here, uh, that the Holy Spirit has been given to these Gentiles, showing the reality of their conversion, and therefore that there's nothing stopping them from receiving the sign of baptism, a sign given to all of God's people. And while we might not receive the Spirit in the same sort of dramatic way, we share in that same Spirit. And when we become a part of God's people, we receive that same sign of baptism. And it comes, this salvation that God gives, comes with the same effect. Cornelius went from being a man who was sincere and religious, but lost, to one who was repentant, believing, and saved. And that's the same change which God is working in people today. He welcomes all people into his kingdom. He works by his spirit through his people to reach out to those, especially those who are the furthest away. So is that you? Is he calling to you? Is he reaching out to you? Because know that that simple message is on offer for you. Or perhaps you've claimed that message If so, who are the outsiders in your life? Are there people who are particularly far geographically, like the need we heard in India, or socially in your own life, people who might be very different to the church social circles uh, that you're a part of, people who you might think might not fit in as well culturally? Could be people like Cornelius, who, who are so close to knowing Jesus, but haven't come to know and trust in him yet. Could be people as far out there as Saul, who only God can save. 
people who still need to know Jesus as their Lord and their Saviour. These are exactly the people whom God calls us to get to know, to build relationships with, to invite into our houses, to share our lives with, to share and show the good news of Jesus too. Acts 10 shows us a powerful picture of God leading his people to hurdle cultural barriers so that the good news of Jesus could be shared to to its intended audience. Everybody. That's a blessing for all of us here, because as far as I know, everyone here would classify as a Gentile, a non-Jew. We are included in all of God's promises for his people. It's a challenge for all of us who seek to, to follow Jesus. It's a challenge to look for ways that he may be calling us outside of our comfort zone to follow him. And it's a message of welcome to anyone who has not yet placed their faith in him. No matter how close to or far away from Christian culture or from God you may feel, whether you are firmly opposed to Jesus or or almost there, you can find forgiveness of your sins and be made right with God through Jesus alone. The road is narrow because it really is only through Christ, but the door is wide open for everybody to come in. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for all that you have done for us. We thank you that you have died on the cross, that you have taken our uncleanness, our impurity, Lord, that you have freely taken that upon yourself. We ask that you will help us who who know you to, to grow closer to you, to deepen our faith in you, to deepen our reliance in you. Lord, we ask that for all of us who haven't yet come to to place our trust in you, that you will work in our hearts, that you will guide us to to come to a, a saving faith in you. And Lord, we ask that through all of us in our lives, through our weeks, we go out from here, that you will use us to have a powerful impact for your name. Amen. As we prepare to go out, let me encourage you with these words that we find in Ephesians, which speak the reality of this message. Ephesians 2 says, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Amen. Let's raise and praise his name.